0: Welcome to The V-Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host Hannah Matluck and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. This episode is sponsored by Materna Medical, the creators of Millie. Millie is the first vaginal trainer with millimeter-by-millimeter adjustable sizing, built-in low and high vibration frequencies, silicone coating, and a transport-friendly and discreet charging case. Now, women of all ages can be empowered to overcome vaginal penetration difficulties in a comfortable, easy, and convenient way so that they can finally enjoy sexual activities and improve their intimate health. If you are interested in learning more about this product, you can visit their website, com. And all Hive listeners can receive $25 off their first Millie by using the code VHIVE25 at checkout. Thank you again to Materna Medical for supporting this week's episode. Today, I am here with Dr. Susan Kellogg-Spott, the Director of Female Sexual Medicine at the Center for Pelvic Medicine in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Dr. Kellogg performs direct patient care, consultative services as a vulvovaginal and pelvic pain specialist, researcher, educator, sexual dysfunction clinician, and therapist. Dr. Kellogg is a certified sexuality counselor and therapist. She has authored and co-authored several books, chapters, and peer-reviewed articles in the field of sexual medicine. She has been featured in the New York Times and on the Today Show 2020, CNN, and the Discovery Channel. She also serves on the executive board of the National Vulvodynia Association. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Kellogg. I am so glad that we met and and that we got connected and that I now have you here to share all of your amazing knowledge and expertise with our listeners.
1: Hi, Hannah. It's my pleasure to be here, especially talking about a topic about which I'm quite passionate.
0: I know. And the work that you've done is amazing and I'm always so like there's, it's crazy because Sometimes it feels like there aren't a lot of specialists in this field, but then as I continue to meet more and more of them, I'm like, wow, each one is so amazing, so interesting, does something different and unique, and it's always so exciting to just be able to connect with, honestly, a lot of specialists who do so much work and advocacy in the field of pelvic health and pelvic pain. So I'm really glad that you are virtually here. Um, So just start by telling us how you got into this career.
1: So um, by background, I um, am a um, OBGYN nurse practitioner. That's how this began. And uh, I also had uh, initially I had a certificate Uh, in sex therapy uh, from a certificate program that was in Chicago at the time many moons ago Mm -hmm. and so my goal was really to start to find a way to meld the two uh, areas of interest and expertise so initially uh, when I first started my career I thought that I would be best served by helping young women make contraceptive choices i.e you know sexuality and OBGYN right Mm -hmm. and so I worked in the Planned Parenthood system for a while and that was very fulfilling but after that I needed and wanted more so I have spent some time in the subspecialties of OBGYN including reproductive um, health and like infertility as well as oncology as well as urogynecology and it is in the latter space that I really encountered a great deal of women whose urogynecologic complaints were that of pain, mm-hmm. um, and that pain affected their intimate lives in often in devastating ways. And it was there I really found my home. And that was 22 years ago. So been doing this for a while.
0: Oh, very long time. And what I yeah. found so interesting when um, I first learned about you was just that you are an OBGYN, but also a sex and relationship therapist. And I think one of the first things I said to you was, I've never heard of that in my life. Like that's so cool because not only are you a trained doctor and physician, but you're also trained to counsel women and men on the mind body psychological connection of chronic pain and I think that that's very rare you mentioned that there are some other specialists who do have this both both of this these trainings but I think it's rare
1: Well, there are a few of us around, and I will tell you, more and more people that find that sexual medicine is their their home uh, in clinical medicine, they are asking me and and others like me, well, how do you get trained in the mind-body part? Because it doesn't Mm -hmm. take you long to be in this field to figure out that you need to learn to be able to talk to people, you need to be able to coach Uh, women and their partners and really help people get, you know, wrap their brain around this and to adapt to it in a more healthy way, not in a psychologically devastating way.
0: Totally. And it's so, it's so clear. I mean, I've learned this just through my work, but you have way more professional experience in this field. and, And I'm sure you've seen how pelvic pain affects our psychological and mental health state incredibly. So being able to help women through that aspect is probably such a big part of your practice.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I would say one of the things um, when we talk about like looking for the right provider for patients or for women, you really have to find somebody that you're pretty comfortable with that you could I always say that you wouldn't mind going to lunch with or mm-hmm, something, you mm-hmm. know, because this level of the ability to really converse at a very heartfelt level and somebody who can say to you, uh, do you know, like maybe you're coping and you're adapting to this would be better if you took on this approach. Or let's talk about how you talk to your partner about this. I mean, that conversational style, that ability to have I don't want to say a friend, but a confidant, Mm -hmm. you know, completely Uh, very important and very much a part of healing Not it goes, it transcends in many ways beyond the clinician uh, patient relationship, but it really, um, it, you know, to be nurtured along the way, Mm -hmm. nobody wants to have pain, especially they don't want to have sexual pain and to be nurtured back to health and, and really supported is really important. Not just this kind of cold doctor patient relationship.
0: I completely, completely agree. And I've mentioned that before on some other episodes, how the relationship you have with your practitioner, especially when you have these types of health issues, is so important. And, you know, I've said this to you and I talk about, I mean, it's obviously I'm comfortable talking about these topics, but even for me, the first OBGYN that diagnosed me with vulvodynia and pelvic floor dysfunction she was great at what I mean she specialized in this and she was helpful but as our work together progressed I didn't feel the level of support that I wanted from her which led me to find another OBGYN who also specializes in pelvic pain and My relationship with her was so much better just because I was more comfortable with her. We connected better. She was so much more optimistic and just, you know, I left her office always, even though I wasn't feeling well, in a good mood because she gave me hope that we would figure this out and that I was going to be okay. And I think that that was so helpful for me and that's so important for, you know, everyone.
1: No, that's absolutely true. One of the things that you can honestly do as a patient uh, to communicate or to pick the right provider, uh, just some tips. I thought about this before we started, like what could be, what could help you be successful? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, find out um, if, uh, what their approaches are, if they, if they even know what sexual pain and vulvar pain is, do they see a lot of patients with it or no, and how do they typically address it? Is there a team approach involved, for instance? Do they have um, a physical therapist or more than one physical therapist that they refer to? Do they have a sex therapist or are they a sex therapist themselves? Um, you know, really going their treatment approaches, simple to complex, you never want to meet somebody the very first day and have them say, hi, um, we can do surgery on you on Thursday of this week. I mean, unless that's what you're really looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but simple to complex is really the more important way to go. Ask about the frequency of visits with them. And do they answer their phone calls? That's a very yeah. simple question, but a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then at least do they have a support team that answers their phone calls for them? You know, their nurses or um, their medical assistants or something like that. Yeah,
0: that's that's a good, really good point.
1: Don't be afraid to ask. Also, like, um, their—I don't know how else to say this—but their success rate. Like, yeah. have they have they had patients for whom pain is no longer? prohibitive is what we call it in our office, prohibitive meaning that you cannot function sexually as you wish because it prohibits you. Mm -hmm. So do they have patients for whom um, they've moved on and they are able to have intimate relationships and maybe they even have, you know, kids and I mean, who knows, you know, that they really feel like they, they are, whole and complete um, and if they don't have no, not everybody okay let's be clear no one is 100 percent from a clinician perspective nobody's at 100 percent hit rate let's be clear about that and for whom uh, pay, clinicians have not been able to take the patient to the finish line if you will to whom do they refer mm-hmm. and do they have a do they have a base that they then quote hand off to Just, mm-hmm. you know like those are really important things now, if you interview a clinician at this length, you're going to get a real sense of whether they get, whether they're really kind, look you in the eye, and tell you, you know, like you feel, again, that almost, that very welcoming situation, or whether you feel they're getting defensive and like, well, if you don't want to come here, you don't have to come here, you know, yeah. that? <laughs> because... Yeah, this is, you're going to talk about some really intimate things. You're going to mm-hmm. talk about things like penetration and thrusting and orgasm and desire and anxiety. And this is not just a high, uh, you know, annual exam, check my lungs, check my heart, goodbye. This is right. not that relationship. It's a very intense relationship.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And it's almost honestly like you're interviewing the doctor because. It's almost like you're hiring them like you're hiring. Right. Yeah. So you want to do your due diligence and you want to make sure that they're the right person to work with, essentially. Right. Exactly. Can you? Yeah. Can you discuss your mission? Because this is so interesting to me. Um, in addition to everything that you do. But you have a mission to educate other practitioners on treatments for pelvic pain. So not only are you helping the patients that you see in your practice, but you're also helping other doctors to understand what pelvic pain is and to know how, what to know what to look for and how to go about treating women when they come to their office with pelvic pain symptoms. And I just want to quickly say that, you know, so often it takes so many doctors to eventually find the one that specializes in pelvic pain. So I think that what you're doing is amazing because, and and so necessary because if more OBGYNs and urologists and even primary care doctors – knew the symptoms of vulvodynia, IC, pelvic floor dysfunction, it wouldn't take women so long to get diagnosed.
1: You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't underscore that enough. You know, it's no secret that the average number of clinicians that a woman with pelvic pain sees exceeds at least five people before she finds the right one. And sadly, sometimes it's 25 before she finds the right one yeah. people have been known to spend thousands of dollars and fly all over the united states and even right. in europe to try to find the right care mm. and that's just plain wrong i mean it's like yeah sexual pain and pelvic pain it is a Difficult clinical problem, but it is not impossible, uh, and it certainly shouldn't take that long to figure it out. To be quite frank, but mm-hmm. um, so so that's why I'll tell you. So many of my patients that I see, I'd say a third of my patients are local to my office, and two thirds are from other states, other cities, other countries in some cases. And so I will often ask them, like, "When did your journey begin? How did it begin? And tell me about." Um, Things that haven't worked for you. And inevitably they've been diagnosed multiple times with by as having yeast infections, quote unquote, just a yeast infection, end of quote. And there's no evidence to support that diagnosis in many cases, or if there is evidence to support a diagnosis, like a culture, for instance, there's no evidence that the culture was repeated to show that the yeast is gone. Mm. You know, or that they treated yeah. the right yeast, because there isn't a type of yeast. There's many, many types of yeast, mm-hmm. and so, um, so it's it's so frustrating because they they in good faith have placed their hands and well, and I do believe that clinicians are well-meaning. Please understand that. But um, if they, I, I always say, you know, if you're not successful, you know, send the patient on, get them in the right hands. You don't have to keep a pelvic pain patient if that's not your thing, but you know, you really should help them move on in the system. So why do I, why do I spend, you know, I don't even know how many days a year I'm on the road, but I'm on the road a lot teaching clinicians about the basics of how to do a vulvar and bladder and pelvic floor examination. Mm -hmm. What are the, the, the danger signs that really support vulvodynia, but also not just does the patient appear to have vulvodynia, but what do you think is the genesis of that vulvodynia, because there are several subtypes, there's several associated factors, not the least of which include pelvic floor, inflammatory and allergic conditions, as well as hormonally um, associated conditions. There's several other, but those are the top three. So, if you can figure out the genesis of the problem, then you can begin to take a logical, rational approach to addressing the problem and that's what patients deserve Mm -hmm.
0: so that's what I teach that's amazing and when you're teaching these practitioners I I assume it's OBGYN specifically
1: no actually it's uh not it's um, OBGYN, urologists uh, primary care nurse practitioners midwives physical therapists Uh physicians assistants and sex therapists these are multidisciplinary conferences that
0: i teach Mm -hmm. that's amazing and do they is this something that they find interesting and necessary i'm just curious like what is their perspective when they're learning about this
1: um it's usually omg omg (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like Why don't I know this? Why didn't I learn this in basic training? You've got to be kidding me. Do you know how I hear? Do you know how many times I've missed this in my career? Oh my gosh. Uh Um, There's a lot of that. But they're so excited Mm. to have a new set of tools in their toolbox, if you will, Mm -hmm. when they go home that we get lots and lots and lots of emails that, you know, they're so excited that they're diagnosing things properly.
0: That's incredible. And it makes so much sense because I would assume that when they're not diagnosing women properly, which as you mentioned, they do have good intentions. It's not their fault, but they just didn't have the knowledge and then the patients keep coming back to them in pain or just leave them to see someone else because they didn't get the solution or the answer. So I I think that that is such an important step in really um, like addressing the, the problem of pelvic pain as a whole.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We, I mean, people go into medicine again, nursing, medicine, psychology, they go in because they want to care for people and they want to help them. They go in usually with a very clean and clear heart. And when you can't help people, it's really frustrating.
0: Mm -hmm. Can I ask you another question that, that I, I didn't, I didn't have in our, in our outline for everyone listening. Usually we, I make a rough draft of an outline before the episode, but and you don't have to answer this if you don't have an answer, but I'm curious because this is something I think about constantly and I've talked to other practitioners about, never on the podcast, but why isn't this training or this, yeah, this training and this education part of the curriculum when someone's becoming a doctor, when someone's in medical school?
1: So, I, I you know, I'm not in charge of you know, the training curricula. And I would say more and more, one thing I'm going to tell you that I'm seeing more and more guest lectures positions for this topic in uh, nurse practitioner programs and midwife programs. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that's because um, they are perceived as having more interest and or more time. And let me give you a different perspective on this. This is this particular situation for a patient takes an enormous amount of her energy and time, and for the clinician, it also takes an enormous amount of energy and time to manage this. Yeah, and to manage it properly, let's say. And so, if a clinician, let's say, is also a surgeon and spends an inordinate amount of time in the OR and has ten minutes to spend in an examination in the in the office, um, that person might not might be the best suited to manage this kind of a complex problem Mm -hmm. do you understand what i'm saying and so perhaps a non-surgeon would be the best place to start or someone who doesn't deliver babies till four in the morning. Right. Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Totally. So not this isn't for everyone. That is not to excuse the fact that it shouldn't be in every training program. And that's again, we're all all the people on the front lines of this, we all teach in medical schools. We all teach in nursing programs. All of us do. Mm-hmm. And it's so that we can get it into the curriculum. But let me give you another perspective and that is to do this well. Um, you need to, A uh, clinician needs to understand not just OBGYN, but a little bit of urology, a little bit of physical medicine and muscle nerve, nerve ending medicine, and some dermatology thrown in as well. Oh yeah. And don't forget infectious disease, mm-hmm. really like these infections and things. So do you see how it really is the, mm, it's the compilation mm-hmm. of much training to understand and sort these cases out? And it's yeah. not impossible. I promise it's yeah. just challenging.
0: Yeah. And do you think that the fact that women, you know, over the past, I don't know how many years, but let's say the past decade are really starting to advocate for themselves more and talk about this more. And I, I think that this is becoming a, I mean, obviously this is a huge women's health issue, but it's becoming more widely and openly discussed you think that that has something to do with the fact that more people are working on the education component
1: yes it has everything to do Mm -hmm. with it The, the groundswell from the the consumer movement if you will the consumers the women saying you know I am not crazy I didn't make this up I didn't ask for this. This problem is impacting very important parts of my life, and I deserve the right care, and educated care, and good care. Right. Um, it's fantastic, and yeah. I applaud all of you mm-hmm. that are listening, that were in the front lines as patients yeah. and we're advocates from your end. Yeah.
0: And even we before we um, started recording, but we were just briefly discussing that you're on the executive board of the National Vulvodynia Association and. My grandma had vulvodynia and was one of the early members and founders of the MVA. And, you know, in her generation, it was not something that anyone talked about, like, like no one talked about this. And it's really interesting to see as a society how far we've come in being more open and more comfortable with Our sexual health and the problems that we encounter as women and obviously we still have a long way to go but it is I think really promising to see the women that are becoming more outspoken and the practitioners that are you know working on the education and uh, education component and more practitioners even more pelvic floor physical therapists who are becoming trained as a pelvic floor PT Um, it's just I think it's clear that this is a growing field, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many people are very excited about it.
0: So mm-hmm. And then, great. yeah, and then something else I want you to discuss is, you know, in tandem with the educational work that you do, um, can you talk about some of the treatment methods that? you kind of explain to providers um, such as pelvic floor physical therapy and dilators and the different methods that women can utilize in order to help heal their pain?
1: Sure. So one of the most important um, things that we teach clinicians is Referral patterns and also device use. So let me explain that a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, the, there has been there are international consensus statements and um, guidelines for how to treat pelvic pain, how to get it diagnosed properly, and how to treat it properly. And in the treatment protocols, the numbers one and two interventions are um, psychological care, like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, coping strategies, et cetera, and then physical medicine or pelvic floor evaluation, pelvic floor release, dilation, et cetera. And those come from a space of do no harm because most people, you know, the least intervention, remember I said always go simple to complex and the least intervention in terms of, potential to harm someone is really supporting them, helping them with coping, et cetera. So referring them to a counselor or a therapist, not because they have a mental disability, but because Mm -hmm. they could use the help to deal with the pain and the relationships. So that's really important. And teaching my fellow clinicians and um, people to do a simple referral for some, um, for some counseling is really important. Another and equally important education piece for clinicians is to learn to ask for and refer for a physical therapy consultation. Now, not everybody with pelvic pain has pelvic floor muscle dysfunction, but I will tell you the large majority does, large by and large. And so in in the event that clinicians feel um, ill-educated about how to assess a muscle for dysfunction, they can simply do a referral and get that patient into uh, an expert pelvic floor therapist for a referral and then for a treatment program. And this can happen from the primary care physician, the nurse midwife, the OBGYN, anybody can do that kind of a referral. And in some states, I think in New York is one, a woman can refer herself for PT without having a clinician refer in on using a prescription. So mm-hmm. it is absolutely appropriate to have an evaluation. Now, part of what physical therapists are really expert in, and is is helping a patient learn to do home program or a home stretching program, whether they're stretching their back muscles and their glutes, but also stretching their vagina. Mm. And so we do this with vaginal trainers, um, also known as dilators. Um, And these are progressive graduated uh, devices, if you will, that are placed in the vagina, sequentially starting very, very small, and then getting quite large, to start to help the patients train their muscles to be able to stretch and accommodate something like uh, intercourse, if that's their goal. And um, vasodilators, you know, we talked a little bit ago about how education is so lacking and how, you know, OBGYNs in school don't learn about sexual med, neither do urologists, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? They really don't know. Nobody really has good training in dilator use. How do you teach a patient how to use a dilator? How does the patient know how to use a dilator? And so that's one of my personal missions um, for this next uh, few years is to really get the word out about dilator therapy because it's so effective. And Mm -hmm. the control is in the patient's hands, not necessarily in the clinician's hands. So that's great. Mm -hmm. They dilators come in all different shapes and sizes, and before, about two years ago, there were these things uh, called static dilators, which are excellent. They're graduated from very small, like the size of your little pinky finger, to quite large, as big as um, a penis, or even bigger than that. And a woman would progress from one size to the next to the next. They come in glass and silicone and plastic, um, and they're actually quite effective um, in helping a patient to do that. And it's really important that a patient doesn't perceive fear when she starts a dilating program so that's why we start really small because fear actually increases muscle tightening at an unconscious level and mm-hmm. so we want to be able to have her feel comfortable with that one of the newer dilators that addresses fear quite beautifully is called uh it's called the milli actually but what it is is an electronic expandable dilator and it goes in the size of Like, again, my finger, tiny little finger, and most people find it extremely non-threatening. But once it can, it electronically, um, at the patient's control, it can increase in diameter very slowly, very gently, um, so that they can actually see progress. Because it also has a numerical display, 1 through 25 so rather than just eight sizes or six sizes, some of of the graduated dilators, which are quite large, can mm-hmm. get quite large. This starts out small always, 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 and then gets bigger and bigger as the patient is able to tolerate.
0: And have, In addition, yeah. it has a
1: vibrational function that can actually relax the muscle through gentle vibration. So um, we're, we're, you know, just like we're learning more and more in education and in therapy, we're learning more in the biomechanics and how we can use devices to help people, people get better really fast.
0: So cool. And have you seen, have you used uh, the Millie with patients in your practice?
1: Absolutely. A ton. And, mm-hmm. and even patients, it's my specialty when patients come in and they're at what they call plateau. Let's say they're coming from another provider and They say, oh, Dr. Kellogg, I'm stuck on a number four, and my boyfriend's a number six. That means, like, size-wise. Right, right. And um, I can't get it. I just, I look at the number six, and it makes me just gag it so big. I can't even imagine it's going to hurt me. And again, what did I just say about fear? When you have fear, you're going to get this unconscious tightening of the muscles um, Mm -hmm. beyond the regular tightening. So true. So it's my plateau buster. I use it all the time. I'll say, let's try this device and see. And when you hit that size that you think you can't go any further, then maybe turn that vibrator function on, warm up the muscles, gently expand the muscles, and then let's see if we can get up to a, a higher level on the milli. And the speed with which people have been able to accommodate a very large uh, size in their vagina using the milli has been about in half mm. previous to, to that. So I'm pretty That's
0: excited. really cool. Yeah. That's fascinating. And yeah. I want to talk about this fear component for a second because the fear as you said is a huge piece of the puzzle in in solving the the pelvic pain you know um In healing someone, essentially, is the fear, the ingrained fear that we have, whether it's getting an infection again or not being able to have sex with our partner or eating the wrong food. There's so much fear that becomes just ingrained in our lives, in the day to day things that we do, in the way that we think. So, you know, as a therapist, how do you work? With your patients and your clients through the fear to help them heal. Okay, you guys, I hope you're enjoying this week's episode, but I need to take a quick break to tell you about the VHives membership platform. It is pretty cool if I must say so myself. There are so many benefits that you can receive every single month, straight to your inbox by becoming a member. Some of these benefits include healthy recipes, Ask Me Anything episodes where you can submit your personal questions, full episode transcripts, discount codes to our favorite products. There is a lot of great content. But not only will you be receiving all of this content, you will also be supporting the V-Hive and helping us continue to grow. So we really do need your support. And by becoming a member The VHive uses all of the funds generated from memberships. We put that directly back into the podcast, which allows us to create more content and spread the mission of this platform, which is educating women across the world on their sexual health far and wide. So I'm passionate about it. The VHive team is passionate about it. I know all of you guys are passionate about this. It's clearly so important and so many women need this information so in order to spread the word we need your help so check out the Vhive's membership platform at www.theveehive.com backslash memberships we're so excited to have all of this bonus content to offer you so check it out let me know what you think you can send an email to info at com if you have any questions and let's get back into this week's episode
1: that is a great question so let me tell you some of the the things that don't work first of all so Mm -hmm. um, if, if you think about what might increase pain and fear From a patient or self or patient perspective, it's first of all looking at self talk things. I cannot tell you how often. I hear patients say, um, I don't even know why he dates me. I'm broken. I'm always going to be broken. I'm just, uh, the goods aren't here. And that kind of negative self-appraisal doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the client. It doesn't help the boyfriend. It doesn't help me as the provider. So it actually has been shown to increase fear. So Mm -hmm. I would say that thinking of um, hypervigilance, things like looking at one's vagina 19 times a day to see if it's still red or still, discharging or still uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that increases muscle tension and then catastrophizing saying, Oh, I'm, I'm going to grow old alone. I will be, uh, I'll be unable to have children like my friends because of the stupid vulvar pain or bladder pain. All of those things are well known to increase the activation of the nervous system, thereby increasing anxiety, thereby increasing fear, and most importantly, increasing tightening and pain. Mm -hmm. So those are things that don't work. Mm -hmm. So if a person's doing them, she would be better served by doing some things that do work. So let's talk about those. Um, first of all, um, self-talk that emphasizes the belief in your own ability to succeed. Like I got this, I've been through worse things in my life, or I've been through difficult things in my life and I nailed it. And I I can nail this. I have the right team. Finally, I'm working with a team that's going to help me, um, and we're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. So self-talk that's positive, um, very important. Um, the other thing is that, uh, you know, really treat yourself with some compassion and love. That's called self-compassion. This is a concept kind of borrowed from Buddhist psychology where you sit with the pain, if you will, and just accept it. Just say, this is where my body is right now. I'm sure it has its reasons. I am going to love myself. I'm going to be kind to myself. And I'm going to do, you know, what I'm supposed to do to get better. But if I skip a day of dilating, I'm not going to beat myself up. If I get an infection, it's not my fault. I wouldn't do anything. So what? So we'll get through it. That's what we do. Do you know that kind of – the kind you to your best friend, you need to be your best friend to yourself, and that's called self-compassion. And we know that this is the kind of thing where reminding yourself you're not alone, reminding yourself that you are basically a competent, a young, fit, healthy, or an old, fit, healthy uh, woman and your body knows its way back. You just need to help it get back. Do you know, give yourself yeah. some space and some love, and don't beat yourself
0: up. That is. So those are the uh-huh. kind of
1: things that really, really help.
0: No, that's so important. And thank you for addressing that because, even for myself, like I am, you know, I thought that I was aware of the mind-body connection, but. More recently, I've been doing a lot of research and personal work on um, the fear that even Uh though I'm not in pain anymore, I still have a lot of fear from the pain. And I, you know, as you said, it's so like the self-talk is so important. It's so helpful. And even, you know, sometimes like if I get a bladder flare up where, you know, I have a day with, urgency that's worse than some other days it's our natural instinct to instantly go to a fear-based mindset and be like oh no oh no oh no I have an infection I have to call my doctor I have to do this I have to take an antibiotic I have to I can't have sex I can't drink coffee I can't do this and it's just the fear is such a terrible cycle and instead to do exactly what you just said to just sit there and say this is okay like to stop to not push it away to not be angry at yourself or at the pain and to just say this is a sensation it's gonna go away it's gone away however many times before I'm feeling something in my body I'm fine I'm healthy I have all the tools I need And if I can just accept the feeling, it will pass and Mm -hmm. to not be so, you know, it's not our fault that we get really worked up when we don't feel well because who doesn't want to feel well? That's totally normal. But at the same time, if we can work on staying calm and present and telling ourselves that the feeling will pass and that it's not our fault and that our body is amazing it helps so
1: much yeah i completely agree and just Mm -hmm. remember your body does know it's way back yeah you know, have faith in your body really because between you and your mindset and a little bit of good clinic clinical care thrown in right you'll come back you'll come back
0: a hundred percent i
1: mean i really patients ask me all the time you know, have you ever have you ever gotten anybody well? And I'm like, well, heck, yes, I have, absolutely, I have. But you know, it's like it's like they need to know. I think that there's that there is a way back. Mm-hmm. We, I, sometimes when I see patients now, once a year, just for follow up. I'll say, do you remember when you were in my office every 10 days? Because, we were, yeah. you know, we were all, you know, all hands on deck in the early days. You right, know? right. It's like they often say, I never thought we'd be sitting here laughing. And I like, know. Having this conversation. It's yeah. Just lovely.
0: Yeah. So, no, that's yeah. amazing. And then in relationship to this topic of the mind-body connection, um, something that I want you to kind of talk our listeners through today is the communication aspect with not only our practitioner but also with our partner and most importantly ourselves and we, we've we just kind of gone over the, the self-talk and the conversations with ourselves but I also know and, and you of course know that women and men struggle to communicate to each other about the pain that that we're having and struggle to communicate to their practitioner, struggle to find the language to express the pain that they feel. Um, What are some ways that women can go about navigating the difficult communication involved in having pelvic pain?
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, let's start with partner communication for a minute. I think Um, the first thing I'm going to tell you straight up, Is it's not time to lie. Yeah, absolutely not. No, 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 no. So, um, just like people sometimes, um, you know, women think, well, if I, if I don't say anything, then he or she won't know. And then they will still want to love me and blah, blah, blah. You know, partners will take a lot of their cues from the woman who owns the body. And so if she's in fear and loathing or in runaway, runaway, runaway avoidance, then they kind of take their cues from that. Um, so usually. Um, and so I would tell you the first thing is to honesty is the best policy and why start a relationship or, or, Cultivate a relationship on lies, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said that, do you remember how we just said, trust your body, we're, we got this, we're gonna find a way back, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of conversation that's really important to have with a partner, too. Not like I'm unlovable, you should leave me, you should have an affair. You know, that's not the kind of coaching that a partner necessarily needs. And it really is a manifestation of, again, that negative kind of feeling and negative self talk. So mm-hmm. um, it's important to be honest, but, and I'm not gonna say positive, but I'd say realistic. Just don't be completely negative. I also think, you know, if, if your partner's a man, particularly, he doesn't have a vagina, for goodness sake, you know, he does he doesn't yeah. have a pelvic floor, but. Who knows if he even knows he has a pelvic floor. And so um, it's really important to kind of put the the conversation, I think, in a space that they can understand. Now, most um, men that I know, at least, and boys that I know, have had a groin pull in their lifetime. Uh, pulled muscle, do you know, mm-hmm. um, or they have been kicked in the genitals and they're like, I mean, inadvertently, but right. inadvertently, but been, so they know what <laughs> genital pain and stinging feels like. And they also know what muscle pain that, that radiates into the groin area feels like, you know, just from yeah. sports and stuff. And uh-huh. so it's one of the things that's really helpful. I think when communicating with anybody is to put it in a space that they understand. So, um, and this is really helps for patients who are newly dating. Like, I have this thing. It involves my muscles, kind of like your groin muscles. Like, if you ever had a groin pull before. And um, it's sometimes the muscles get spasmy, and they don't let me be able to be comfortable with penetration or with resting. And so we might have to be creative in our sexual play, or sexual lovemaking. Um, and I go to a physical therapist and or I have a tr- muscle trainer, you see those words? Don't they feel normal? Mm-hmm. They don't feel scary. They don't feel like STD land. They right. don't feel like you know. Because when when you talk a lot about vagina, they don't always speak vagina. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Totally. So putting it in words that a partner can relate to, I think is just really important. Um, if a partner has a completely negative, let's say your partner's catastrophizing and saying, "Oh." I'm just destined to a life with no sex. You know, like I would say they can be an ex partner. If mm. they can't get it together, they should be an ex partner.
0: Yeah, I agree with that.
1: that. Now, Conversely, and this is going to be surprising for you, I think, and this, most of what I'm telling you, by the way, is not only experience-based, but this is all research-based. Mm-hmm. And so something else that is really interesting is that the partner who is just so solicitous and lovely and, oh, baby, don't you worry. We never, never have to have any sex of any kind again ever for the rest of our lives <laughs> together. <laughs> That is not helping you. That is not the kind of partner who who really... And they think they're doing something sweet, but that is not the kind of thing. Stopping all sexual intimacy and all sexual play eventually makes a woman feel less desirable, uh, less uh, feminine-ish, you know, Mm, and less attractive. um, And that's not helping either one of you. And so finding that middle ground, having the partner who might need coaching, by the way, but who Mm -hmm. says, okay... I understand you're you're in a flare today and so, you know, penetrative play is completely off the table, I get it uh, and so that's fine but I want to hold you and I want to kiss you and I want to, you know, I want to have nipple play with you, I, you know that kind of thing, do you understand mm-hmm. what, or babe, what isn't hurting you today and let's make the most of it do you right. know, like what body part, because oftentimes when you have a vulvar flare or even a bladder flare, sometimes the clitoris is still fine and functional, right,
0: you know?
1: yeah, so Really having, but you see, where honesty has to come in right out of the gate, if you're going to have these kind of conversations, it has to be pretty honest, do you know? Yeah. And go back to the groin pull for a minute. Let's say it's a beautiful sunny afternoon and your boyfriend has a groin pull, he might not be able to go running with you in the park, but he might be able to walk mm. or sit on a park bench near a lake, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you would still do stuff, it just wouldn't hurt his groin, or her groin, as the case may be, and right. so... That's the kind of conversation, and it's really called um, just when the partner understands what's going on. He's he or she is part of the team, and they're helping the woman with the pain have what they call adaptive coping, and that's like we'll figure this one out together. But let's still have some intimacy.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you have any tips for how a woman or a couple can go about? A woman can go about talking to their partner about approaching the idea of sex or, you know, sex relationship couples therapy because that can obviously be such a key component of navigating this. And I think that a lot of women are afraid to approach, whether it's their boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, about embarking on the journey of of sex and relationship therapy um but sometimes it's really necessary
1: so well first of all that one of the things from the clinician's perspective is that's why we're educating clinicians to actually make it quote you know doctor's orders or nurse practitioner orders because they can always i always say blame me and you can say well dr kellogg really wants us to do this (laughs) that's
0: actually a really good a really good strategy
1: (laughs) totally blame that clinician Um, But if not, you can say, you know, I, um, I'm, I really, I value this relationship so much and I'm, this is going to be, you know, I find that this is really a stressor in our relationship and I don't, I want you and me to stay intimate, but I'm not sure how to do it for the long haul. So would you mind going? And I would say, please understand sex therapy. Nobody has to take their clothes off. It's important that, uh, friends or you know like um lovers know that they don't have to get naked in sex therapy at all um and that we don't really go back sex therapists are very much trained to do the here and the now so even though there's a little bit of history taking in the beginning we don't go back to how you were potty trained and how you felt about aunt martha you know not at all it's very much taking you in the moment like what's going on right now and how can I help you navigate these waters that you've never had to navigate before? Mm-hmm. How can I help you with that? Do you know? Right. Yeah. And it's usually also very short and self-limiting, so people don't tend to be in sex therapy for five and ten and fifteen years like they're in psychotherapy. They tend to be in sex therapy between twenty and maybe forty sessions, mm-hmm. and that's it. done. Mm-hmm. So it's quick. It's to the point, and it's um, amazingly helpful. Also, it really. I don't know that you tell a person that I partner this, but it gives a partner a space for them to vent. I mean, yeah. they have to say how they really feel about this, you know? And with a third party kind of doing the, the middle ground here, um, it just helps you get your feelings out on the table. So there's no, I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what she's thinking. It's just really, it's just, it's lovely. It's yeah. truly a lovely experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And no, that's a, that's a great point. And I think that, you know as you said when you have the third party there to kind of give the expert insight and to mediate the conversation in a way that helps the man understand the woman um mm-hmm.
1: in a and way where expl- ex- understand the other woman Do you know e- as the ex- case
0: may, ex- may be yeah. exactly um because sometimes you know even if you have the language to talk to your partner it's like i think it's kind of like you you don't always get the message across in the best way maybe sometimes so when you have that professional in the room to help it it can really change the way it can change the relationship and the dynamic you know surrounding the circumstances
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You I'm going to take a quote from the oncology community just for a minute. And one of the things we teach women after um, hysterectomy or after breast cancer or after guys after prostate cancer is to say a very simple phrase. And that is my body might have changed, but my feelings about you haven't. Mm. So help me express my feelings for you in a way that we both can be comfortable with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just like, Let them know this is not about you don't hate them. You haven't lost that love and feeling. You haven't you're not sleeping with somebody else. You know, your feelings are right where they need to be.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. I love that. And one other thing that you mentioned that I also just want to touch upon again is the honesty component. And <laughs> while it might feel easier to. I don't wanna say lie, but to kind of hide the way that you feel. Mm -hmm. It's never helpful. At least I've found it's never helpful. And, you know, I personally have always used every ounce in me to be honest with my partner about the way that I feel. And I've never, and this is not the case for everyone, and, and I know that, but I've never regretted. Being honest, because at least for yourself, you get your feelings out. You know, for me, my boyfriend always knows how I'm feeling, and and it's not that I need to tell him every single day the way that I feel. But it's like you know, maybe when you first start dating, you just explain what what you're going through and what what you know, this part of your life. And it doesn't mean it's like going to be that way forever. And for some people it's more limiting than others, but at least it's like, this is me. This is who I am. This is the, the stuff, the shit that I'm going through and it's not going to be forever, but it's right now. And that's that. And then it's like so liberating. And I would put a lot of money on the fact that if you can be honest off the bat more often than not, other person will respond pretty well
1: absolutely you know one of the things I have to tell you that people women say to me all the time is okay Dr. K I tried being honest Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and especially when they're in a new relationship they're like newly dating and that's okay I tried to be honest and I told him and he was so awesome but then he would like You know, we go through man, I'm going to use proper words, but we go through manual pleasure, and he'd be like, Are you okay? And then we go through oral pleasure, and he'd be like, Are you okay? Are you still okay? And like, that is what you don't want either. So, part of the honesty contract with your partner is that he or she should just proceed and that you'll let them know if the proceeding needs to be changed in some way. But if they haven't heard any peeping from you, let's keep moving we don't that's a re- know, no that's a really good point the moment,
0: you know? yeah that's so. a really good point and I think that that also has to do with the fear like if if the man let's say is going to ask that it might make the fear component worse which isn't going to help Oh yeah
1: I know right mm-hmm. so yeah
0: that's a but really good point. Go,
1: but they, you know, guys don't come out of the womb, and women don't come out of the womb knowing how to communicate like this. That's why it's just hard. Can really help, and you know, as if you're an empowered woman, you can really help and say, "Hey, babe, you know what? You are so awesome for asking." But how about you don't ask <laughs> quite that often?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. That's totally true. the The communication aspect is definitely not something that comes natural to everyone, but yeah. it is something that that can be done and can be worked on. So I think that that's kind of the light in in this. Um but one other thing that I want you to talk everyone listening through is the communicating with the practitioner and a lot of women struggle with that. Um you know they'll they're so embarrassed understandably so by the pain they have that they don't even feel comfortable telling their gynecologist or urologist or primary care doctor that they have vaginal pain or bladder pain. And so how can they feel more comfortable communicating with their practitioner?
1: I think in the early days when things are not going well, um, <laughs> it's probably important to say to, to note to the clinician who's caring for you that you re- remember or you know what, quote, normal feels like, unless, of course, you don't know that, and that's okay, too. But if, if there's been a change from what you perceive to be pain-free sex, pain-free periods, pain-free peeing, um, pooping, whatever, mm-hmm. and, and something can you explain what you think has changed and then can you explain what you think, and you might be wrong by the way, but it's okay to guess what you think the inciting event was mm-hmm. like ever since I blank. In fact, when I'm doing intake, um, I often will say complete the sentence. I felt perfectly fine until, and then I just let the patient talk. Do you, you know, like yeah. n- clinicians are, 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 good guessers, but they don't really need to guess if you just tell your story, you right. know? And, Sometimes if you're a person who feels all sweaty and nervous when you're meeting a new clinician or when you go to your clinician, um, you can also bring notes with you so that you can remember what you wanted to say. Another thing is if you feel, if you're with a clinician and they're one of, like, most of American healthcare providers, honest to goodness, we have 10 minutes to see you. Please understand that. We're not trying to be a pistol about it, but we have 10 or 15 minutes and then You know, our our nurse practitioner or MA or our nurse to say, hey, room six is waiting for you. Room seven is in the waiting room for an hour. Um, So this is not something that typically is handled best in a 10-minute visit. So it's okay to bring it up. But if you're sensing that someone is pacing or just trying to, you know, like doesn't have time, say, listen, I know you're on schedule today. So is there a time when I can schedule a longer visit so that we can really talk about this? Mm -hmm. Do you understand? Yeah. Um, if they, if they say, uh, yeah, I don't really do that. Do you know what I mean? What I just said is I don't really do that for a living do you, or I don't really, you know, <laughs> do you mm-hmm. understand say, okay, I understand that you deliver babies all day or you, you know, do kidney stones all day. Can you please refer me to someone who does, you know, no harm, no foul, just don't don't waste the patient's time messing around with somebody who really doesn't want to do this for a living. Right. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, If you're with the, who you think is the right person and you think um, the program you're on um, isn't moving you forward, you just be honest about it. Just say, we've been doing this cream for six weeks and I appreciate the science behind it, but it's not working for me. What else can we try Mm. now? You're part of that deal contractually with, uh, I mean, non-written contractually is please don't use a cream for one day and call and say it's not working. Do do you know what I mean? Like ask what's, what's a reasonable amount of time before we should come back together again and see what's going on. Do do you know? And do that with your physical therapist Mm -hmm. too. Same thing. Exactly. Totally. Um, I, I think just, you know. Give respect and you deserve respect. So, when you give respect to a clinician, they you deserve the respect right back to mm-hmm. be heard, to be listened to, and to you know move on. The other thing is, don't be afraid if you you know read an article or you talk to a girlfriend who got better to say, Could we look at Botox for my pelvic floor? I heard that some people get better with that, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you are your girlfriend, let's be clear, you know, but it might be something that your clinician. It didn't dawn on them or they were thinking about it, but they didn't, whatever. Then right. maybe they thought they would do it later. Do you know, it's fine to do your own research. It's fine to be on the internet. I wouldn't say don't believe everything you read on the internet, but having said that, you are just like you're a fit, healthy woman. You're also a smart, healthy woman. And mm. so hop on the internet and take a look around. Go to people that are known experts in this field. That's mm-hmm. what I would say too.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. The last thing I want to ask you is if you could just give one piece of advice, one takeaway, what would it be?
1: That life goes on. I'm telling you, I really I yeah. have to tell you that you're not going to feel like this forever. Let me be perfectly clear. Mm. Under most circumstances, you're not going to feel like this forever. And Hannah, you're living, breathing evidence. Of yeah. This. Do you know, yeah. you don't mind me bringing no, it no, up. No, No, you so. can bring it up. Um, and so people do go on and they have healthy relationships and they meet the right person. And if they have a flair later on, it's not the end of the world. It's something they'll get through. Um, and that they, they go on and have families and careers and, and life. And this is uh, a difficult thing to get through, but um, it really does make people strong, empowered, and they get to the other side of it.
0: It's so true. I, I could not agree more. And... Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that it's hard, but it also is. There's probably tens hundreds. There's I don't even know how many women have had pelvic pain and gotten through it. I've talked to so many women myself, so it really is possible. Um, thank you for mentioning that because it's really yeah. important for people to know that this. Just because you have any of the issues we've discussed doesn't mean that you're going to have them for your entire life at all. So, right.
1: And they don't define you. You're, yeah. a, you. you're a person with so many dimensions other than your vagina or your water. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'd say is remember you're not alone. Um, uh, estimates currently look at about one in six women have this mm-hmm. or have some experience with it. They may they, they have it for a longer period of time, shorter period of time, but one in six is not a rare disorder by any no. stretch of the imagination. So.
0: Nope. Very common, actually. (laughs) Um, Are there any resources you have to recommend?
1: Yeah, um, for finding a provider, I think there's a couple of them. Let me talk about different kinds of providers for a minute. So uh, in terms of sex therapy, there are websites, uh, capital A-A-S-E-C-T, that is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And you can go into find a provider page. You can also go in the back of a very popular magazine called psychology today. Mm -hmm. And you might be able to find a therapist in your area. Even people who do video therapy, Um, especially boy, COVID has taught us a lot. hasn't it? How to do telehealth and stuff like that. Um, so that's one. Another one is the international public pain society. IPPS has a find a provider page. And the one that I'm most, um, Happy about is the last one, and that's Ishwish. ISSWSH, I'll repeat that. ISSWSH.org, ishwish.org, that is the International Society for the Study of uh, Sexual Health, Women's Sexual Health. And uh that we are very much specialists um in in all things, sexual, female, pain, etc. So those will all help you find providers. Um, go to the websites, read about uh, current literature. Don't be don't be shy about reading medical publications. It's not easy at first, but you can get the gist of it by reading the abstract mm-hmm. on any medical publication and new findings and things yeah. like that. And then, last but not least, is the National Bobadini Association (NBA) and the Interstitial Cystitis Association (the ICA). Mm-hmm. Those are great, great support uh, organizations for people with
0: pain. Thank you. And where can everyone contact you?
1: Um, I you can go to drkellogg.com and take a look at my bio, and or they can find me at the Center for Pelvic Medicine in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Um, and they can just um, you know the patient appointments are available should they choose to do so.
0: Amazing! Thank you for being here and for sharing all of this really really important information. And thank you for the work that you do, and for educating other practitioners and helping so many women heal. It's amazing and. I'm so grateful that I got to talk to you today. So thank you.
1: My pleasure indeed. And to all the listeners of the VHive, um, keep up the great work from your perspective as an advocacy, patient advocacy.
0: Thank you. Care. Thank you so yeah. much. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thank you. bye, bye. This podcast is for education purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.